Good morning, Heyman. Morning. Welcome. And hello, everybody else. Let me tell oh, here comes Courtney um, and, and Reblaka. Let's get Reblaka up and Courtney up. Courtney has a marvelous story that I wanted her to tell in this room. Okay, I'm, I'm going to get started. And I'll, I'll get started. I'm going back to the basics. The mission and vision of Karma Club, which is what this room is, um, is to create community around difficult issues by stressing the whole idea of karma and what it means. And this might be an unfortunate time to talk about it, but karma means that you get back what you put out. And what we were trying to put out using the karma coin is, you know, is the karma club is the idea that if you put out good, you will get back good and vice versa. And we've been trying to put out good for over a year now in this club. And we use a cryptocurrency called the karma coin as a symbol of that community. And you can purchase that coin at rally.io, but I think I'm getting ready to give away some more karma coins. Um, so if you just go to rally.io and sign up and let me know that you've done that in the back channel here and give, tell me what your username is, I'll just send you some coins um, because this is not a time to try and make people do something, take more chances. We, we're taking enough, we're taking enough chances. Um, we use the proceeds from the sale of the coin to support other creators. We're, we are supporting about 86 creators right now. And we also hope we're bringing a little joy into a world that is increasingly troubled. So with that, I think I will, I will get into I will get into the stuff of Karma Club. I had a painful conversation last night with my mentor in all things concerning blackness, Rablaka for the Blacks, who is this amazing diversity consultant that I have had the pleasure to meet through Clubhouse and that I'm wildly trying to market so that her, her expertise can be appreciated. And at any rate, she has done a kick-ass job of educating me. And as a result, I've spent the last month um, celebrating Black History Month in rooms that, sad to say, are always full of other Black people and not of the people who should be celebrating Black History Month and learning about Black History Month, and that is white people. And I, I, I'll let you, I think I'll let you uh, come to the conclusion after I tell you what has happened to me. Okay, I always thought I was an ally because, of course, I grew up in New York City, and my father was an attorney in show business who had black clients, and I thought, oh, I'm really there. I'm an ally. 
And then I got on Clubhouse and made some small and big mistakes and committed some major and minor microaggressions and was taught that, well, maybe I ought to do some work before I present myself as an ally. So I went back to the drawing board. I read a lot of books and I went to a lot of black clubhouse rooms. And so with the infinite, um, in Yiddish it's called chutzpah, um, in Greek it's called hubris, that you get from, um, from thinking you know everything, I decided I was going to do a month-long program for Black History Month and that I was going to um, try to express to other people um, what we need to know in order to be allies. And I thought I was capable of doing this, but I really wasn't. Uh, and I'll tell you the smallest, maybe the smallest, Rebecca can tell me if, if it's this really the smallest um, error or miscalculation that I made that made me realize how hard it is to be a good ally and how I really wasn't there. Um, Dr. Dan, who is a man I love, um, told me that he drinks his coffee extra black. And you know what I responded to him? I said, good boy. And I had, you know, at the moment that I said it, I had no, no recollection of how bad that term boy was for a man in the black community, especially a man who was a doctor. And it wasn't until um, it wasn't on until Rebecca for the Blacks pointed it out to me that that I realized that that was a terrible microaggression. And if that was the only one, maybe I could go on much more easily and and go past it, but it wasn't the only one. I also didn't vet all the people who wanted to be on my stages. If they volunteered to be on, I put them on, especially if they were black. And in doing that, and I didn't know enough about them before I put them on my stage, and Kanani tried, so, but we're black up for the blacks, tried so much to tell me that I had to be prepared and I had to be careful and I had to realize what people were bringing to the table and I had to pay more attention. And I basically thought, oh, I can do this. I come from a, a place of good heart. And last night, Rebecca referred to me as, and this was very pejorative, as a nice white lady who didn't help the, the cause of the culture. I did and not say that. Yeah, yeah, you did. Did you I? Said, you no. said I'm, 
I said you have to be careful of the perception of people, right? That the nice white lady and then, you know, without, you know, your own research, your own, like, more than just excitement and passion, but, like, your actual, like, thoughts and, like, you know, what you think, like, that. I did not say, no, I didn't say that, but I did say be mindful of being perceived as oh the nice the nice white lady right that 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 you have to be able to pivot to to show that you're more than just you know you care but like oh you know i have receipts i have you know actual re- i'll let you finish but like yes <laughs> <laughs> well the long and short of it is i put my mentor and friend Rebecca for the blacks in a bad position by being unprepared because she was engaged with me in helping to produce these rooms. So I really, um, you know, first of all, I apologize to everyone in the black community for how ill-informed I was. What I have learned, and I have learned something because I've found a lot of rooms um, where things are, are being discussed that go below the surface of the experience of the black community in the United States. And I, I am, one of them, is, one of the rooms is called plantation theory. And, uh, and I've been listening to plantation theory because last night they had on a woman who was talking about the fact that you could have PTSD, which is post-traumatic slave disorder, and it could it could affect your behavior generations later and the way that you acted toward your children. And I'll, I'll give you, and, and, and toward the community at large, and I'll give you an example of that uh, because I think it, it is important. Um, the, the example is a black mother who was afraid to say good things about her son. When someone asked her a question, said to her, oh, your son seems so smart. She was like, oh, he's just a handful. And she was unable to wholeheartedly just say thank you because in in the history of slaves and plantation theory, if your son was supposedly above average, he would probably get traded away. And if your daughter was above average, she would get bred. So you didn't have the freedom to brag on your children. And to, to me, because I brag on my children all the time, this and my grandchildren, this was dreadful absolutely the most dreadful thing I had ever heard. So that's that's one thing I learned. Another I learned is that the wrong people are celebrating Black History Month. The wrong people are in this room right this second. The people who should be in here are white people. And the reason that they should be in here is that we have a way to go 
before we even know anything about the people we live with every day in the United States, the people who save our elections and the people who do things for us. Um, and then we, we turn around and either ignore them or uh, worse, we, we spit on them. I mean, we're not good to them. So, so that, that, that was another thing that I, I learned. And the third thing that I learned was how rich black culture is in other places that are not the United States. And this morning I was led to a site called Black Billionaires in Africa. And it's about a, a lot of, of black billionaires in Africa that um, are doing philanthropy and impact investing. And once again, we, the United States, are used to seeing Africa as, um, as such a crappy place and behind and needing our help and, you know, stuff like that. It, what Donald Trump used to call the shithole countries. Um, that we're that we don't understand the richness of Africa, and we don't understand how how there's how much we don't know about the black people that we live with, and how much it hurts both of us to be so ignorant. So my my final conclusions are that Black History Month should be for white people to learn about black people as much as for black people to celebrate their accomplishments. And another thing that I learned is that I'm still a structural racist and I'm capable of stereotyping and insulting without even realizing it. And that I, I um, commit real microaggressions. And and there's so much about you that I still don't know. Oh. For instance, Hang on. how many flowers do you like? This is a robot that was sent to me because I am an elderly person who lives alone. And she has chosen this moment to ask me what kind of flowers <laughs> I like. And while I'm very technologically Sally, savvy, I cannot find the off Today, button. Elecu, stop for a moment. You know, she just said to me, if this is a flower, I've never heard of it. Now I've driven her crazy. Scotland's national animal is the unicorn. Help, I've been taken over by robots. All right, let me get her off. I hope that does it. Um, okay, and my, the qualitative result of what I've learned is I mean, the quantitative result is don't step in and think I can do things that I don't have the background to do. Don't try to help when I really can't do anything to fix the problem. And don't think of the black community as the black community as though it were all one community and everybody was the same. And if I, if I can master those things for this year and then move on after that, 
I'll feel like I really learned something. So I invited a couple of people to tell stories that I heard in other rooms that I thought were really important for black, for knowledge of the black community, things that, you know, you might not know. And one of the people is Courtney, Courtney, who's on our stage now, who is going to tell us the story about the founding of Storer College. So Courtney, would you be so gracious? Of course, thank you. So if you PTR really quickly, I've actually changed my PTR to three former students of Stora College. Their names starting from the left would be Isabel Stewart. In the middle, you'll see Raymond McNeil. And then on the far right, you're going to see Odetta Johnson. And this particular picture was taken in 1917. So Storer College was created in 1867 and started as a collaboration between the Freedmen's Bureau, the Free Will Baptists of New England, as well as John Storer, who was a businessman and a philanthropist from Sanford, Maine. It would be the first school in West Virginia where Black Americans could obtain an education beyond the primary level. The college was located in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, nestled in the Shenandoah Valley, which at the time was the home of over 300,000 newly freed men immediately um, after the Civil War. The school functioned as a normal school, like most HBCUs. Storer offered a four-year high school program, a traditional two-year elementary teacher training program, a two-year junior college program, and separate courses that focused on homemaking and agriculture. In 1870, the school would request a charter from West Virginia, stating that, quote, it is the design that this institution shall ultimately become a college. And to this end, a charter granting full college powers has been obtained. It will, however, be run for the present as a normal school or academy, as it is believed that in this way, it will best meet the wants of the colored people for whose benefit it is especially designed. But it is hoped that at no very distant day, the facilities for instruction will be more ample, the course of study enlarged, and the number of students increased and that many will be receiving collegiate instruction, end quote. Storer would eventually get their wish. Storer's first class in 1867 had only 19 students enrolled, but by 1884, they would have 288 students attending the school. The school's campus would expand quickly to 30 acres and grow to include a men's boarding hall, a women's dormitory, a chapel with recreation rooms, a printing office, reading rooms, and music rooms. Taking a quick glance at the biennial catalog for the college, which is dated 1877, shows the students' course selections included Latin, grammar, arithmetic, and algebra, 
English literature, the science of government, moral sciences, as well as astronomy. Storer would receive accreditation in the 1940s, allowing students to receive a bachelor's in elementary and secondary education in the fields of science, social science, English, as well as economics. While Storer College was active, it graduated between 7,000 to 8,000 students who studied a myriad of disciplines from theology, biology, education, and music. Storer was also a consistent hotbed of civil rights activity. In 1881, Frederick Douglass gave his infamous John Brown speech on the campus. In 1896, the National League of Colored Women visited as part of their first convention. The Niagara Movement, a precursor to the NAACP, met at Storer College in 1906. And in 1909, John Brown's Fort, which was the firehouse where John Brown was captured during Harper's Ferry's raid, was moved onto campus. Storer College graduated its very last class in 1955. The early 50s brought rough economic times, leaving the school to maintain itself on loans and income acquired from slowly selling off school property around town. The college was forced to close, however, when the Board v. Brown, sorry, Brown v. Board of Education decision led to West Virginia deciding to discontinue funding Store College. Because Brown v. Board of Education concluded, quote, racial segregation in public schools to be unconstitutional, end quote. West Virginia then used that decision to rescind Storer's annual $20,000 appropriation, citing that that appropriation was intended to finance studies by Negro students at Storer, but it is now unnecessary because Negroes are now eligible to enroll at other state colleges. Currently, there are six existing buildings that once belonged to Storer College, which can be seen in the Harper's Ferry National Park today. There's also an exhibit in Old Town Harper's Ferry that highlights the college as part of their exhibit on the historical Black residents of Harper's Ferry. For notable alumni, we have J.R. Clifford, who was the first African-American attorney from West Virginia. We also have Ida Newby, if the last name Newby sounds familiar, that is because she's the niece of Dangerfield Newby. Dangerfield Newby was one of the five black men that assisted John Brown in the raid on Harper's Ferry in, I believe, the years 1859. Another notable alumni would be Namdi Azikwe, who is the first president of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. And then we also have Hamilton Hatter, who would become the first president of Bluefield State College, which is another HBCU located in West Virginia. So I have completed my story. Thank you, Dr. Francine. Well, here's the thing, you know, did any of you know that story? Do any of you even know that there was a black college in Harper's Ferry? Did any of you know that it was forced to close because of Brown versus Board of Education? Did any of you know that it started off by teaching former slaves to read and write? I, you know, after Rebecca for the Blacks 
uh, put my feet to the fire last night, I did a lot of research on both this story and the story that uh, I'm hoping Shireen will get in here to share with us. Because these are people that we, we in the white community, you know, don't even think about. And we, we just, oh yes, I found that site, Heyman. Heyman just put up Black Past. And I found that last night too. And we, we live side by side with a population or a segment of the population that we know nothing about and we're not even really curious enough you're cutting out Francine, is your phone connected to Bluetooth with that speaker robot or something? Because that could be part of the problem while your phone goes out every once in a while. I think she got a call just now. That's why maybe that's the reason. Okay. Did I start off in this room on stage? Hello, everyone. Hi, Elijah. Yo, I thought I was in the audience, and then it said you're a moderator. I'm like, when did I get on stage? But hi. We got a, uh, a walk into the uh, history of Storr College from Courtney Morris. Did I pronounce that right, Courtney? Courtney. Courtney, My sorry. My got creative, but it's the normal just bland Courtney. <laughs> okay. Hey, Cor- uh, yeah, I just found out. Uh, actually, my sister found out last week that uh, my grandmother and her older brother, they both went to Storr College in 1939 and 1940. So it's a very funny coincidence. Can, can you back channel me the thing that you were reading or send me a link or something? Yeah, I typed it out in Google Docs. I'll just send you my little Google Doc. Yeah, I'd love to send that to my sister. Maybe I'll send you my grandmother's transcript. Her, her grades were really bad, but she did take organic chemistry and French there. So, you know, if you go to Harper's Ferry, they have one of the buildings that's kind of dedicated to the circle of black residents of Harper's Ferry. And they have a couple of walls for past students of Stora College. And they have um, like attendance roles and images. So you should definitely go check that out and see if you have any family members on the wall. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. I'm sorry to be late, um, but Dr. Francie, I just want you to know that the book that I was reading from for the stories I was telling was coming from Vern. He sent me the book. It's called I Dream a World. And I'm certain he has one of the, or two of the stories that I was sharing in my room each day. So if you want to have another version of a historical framework, uh, please do ask Vern to add to the question. Shireen, maybe it's just me, but I can bear, and it's not the alarm, it's not the, it's not yeah, the I, in Harlem, we can to, barely hear you. I wanted you to read your story at, like you did the other day in your own room, um, and I got thrown into the matrix, so I had to leave for a minute, and I don't know what you were up to. When I left, the last thing I heard myself saying was, please come up and whenever you can 
and tell us your story. So, so what I was saying was that the, the, the stories I was telling in my rooms was, um, uh, about a book that, uh, Vern sent me with stories that he was also reading in my room. And in truth, since I'm honored to have Vern on the stage, is to have him tell one of the stories. Especially the one he couldn't tell, maybe, Vern, if you want to tell of the two sisters. Fortunately, I'm working from home today, and I, I have a copy of the book. Let me find. Oh, yeah, the, the Winston sisters, Winston, Winnie and, and Dovey Hudson. Yes, please do. Uh, yeah, give me a second. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so this is from a book. It's called, it's called I Dream a World. It's by a photographer named Brian Lanker and he published it, I think in 92 and then he republished it. Well, I guess 89 and then he republished it in 99, like a 10 year edition. Uh, and it's a book that has, uh, on each page, there's a profile of a black woman or black women um, with a biography that he interviewed them and he took a photograph. And for most of them, I think the only one that he didn't interview in their, in their own surroundings was Rosa Parks. She opens the book, but everybody else was in their, their home environments. And then he interviewed them and then he kind of did a edited transcript of what they said. Uh, so, uh, for, for Winnie and, and Dovey, I mean, Winston and Dovey Hudson, uh, they served as so that there's a little biography that he does uh of the subjects so uh Dovey Hudson was born July 29th 1914 in Carthage Mississippi she died November 5th 1994 so just after the first edition was published and Winston Hudson Hudson was her younger sister she was born in November 17th 1916 in Carthage Mississippi and they look kind of like twins <laughs> sitting next to each other. Uh, they served as committed community activists in rural Mississippi for decades. They, on behalf of their children, were the first black plaintiffs to file a school desegregation suit against the state. They were also instrumental in democratizing voter registration, establishing preschool centers, and implementing nutrition programs. Although her sister has passed on Winnie Hudson at age 83 is still dedicated fighter for justice. She has been the president of Lee County, Mississippi NAACP for 37 years and is the recipient of multiple honors and awards in her home state. In 1997, Mrs. Hudson traveled to Alex Haley farm in Clinton, Tennessee to tape an account of her activities in Lee County during the civil rights movement. The taping was accomplished under the auspices of the Children's Defense Fund. The Winston Gates Hudson Head Start School opened its doors in 1998. And I think the addition I sent to, oh, yours, yeah, yours was the 10-year 10, 10 anniversary. Uh, so this is them in their words. Um, <clears throat> we lived in this black community, and those large families were very protective of their children, especially girls. Oh yeah. Also, uh, there's a uh, trigger alert. There's some violence in these uh, in their history. White men would walk the trails where we had to go wash at the spring, and if they caught a girl alone, they'd just rape her. 
parents were afraid to say too much about it. You might be visited by the KKK that night. There wasn't nothing they could do about it. Uh, and these are all from Winnie. I mean, Winston. My mama and daddy had 14 children, but they raised 12. Our mother was a missionary and our father was a minister. So we were brought up very religious, singing. She can sing. I can't sing. We travel together and they, they and I say, I preach and she sing. They called us the big women from Leake County everywhere we go across the state. My dad was brave. He had that hostility in him because they hung his brother. When the Ku Klux Klan would come through here, other people would come to our house for safety. My daddy was not afraid, and that taught us. We never was afraid of them, and we got people much younger than we are, just so afraid of white people right now. We petitioned the school board to desegregate the public school. That was the first step. The petition carried 52 names. They took all of these names and put it into a courthouse where everybody could see it. White people were pressured, all but 13, to remove their name. Really, it was six that stayed. Dovey was the leader. I give her credit. She was a brave woman here with 10 children. I brought a little money from the bank to do my planning, and they called me in at the bank. The banker says to me, we have been mighty good to you. We lent you money. I said, yes, but I've been paying it back, haven't I? He said, well, yes, but we have to have our money or else we're going to foreclose. I said that I wasn't going to remove my name from the petition. You'll just have to foreclose, I said. Uh, the, stock is, the stock is there when you get ready to pick them up. They took all I had, seven cows and one mule. Uh, and that's, uh, that's Dubby. My daughters were sitting at the table here getting out their homework, and they throwed that bomb there. They knocked that window out. That's Dubby. They came through here putting bombs in the mailbox. I heard the bombs go off. She called me and said, they're on their way down here. I called my boys, and one got a gun, and one, and one got the other one. And just as they drove up and put the bomb in the mailbox, my boys started shooting. They just lined the car with bullets up and down. The more they did to us, the meaner we got. Our husband was not as brave as we was. No, sorry. Our husbands was not as brave as we was. We had to protect our men. If my husband hadn't been in the house, he would not have made it because the black man has always been the target. The voters' registration, that was something else. It took me two years to get registered. It took Dovey 18 months. One time we went to the courthouse and we saw a bunch of great big old white men clustered around the door where we had to go in and register. I say, Dovey, they got us today. She said, let's go down to the basement and pray. We went down to the basement and she prayed. They said, I was too mean to pray. That's uh, Winston. Dovey talked to the Lord about it, and she said, let's go. There's a shield over us. They can't touch us. So we walked way down the long hall. They had the door covered, and we clustered around. And do you know, we walked right through those men and just rubbed them. Excuse me, excuse me. And they just turned their backs. When we went, to when we went in to register, they would come in and put a card down. 
it was just big enough for two eyes. It says, the eyes of the Klan is upon you. You have been identified by the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan. When you go in to register, they give you a sheet of paper and an article in the, in the Mississippi Constitution. When you get through writing it, then you have to interpret it. And so you do all of this. And then I'd go back and I'd say, the board said y'all didn't pass. I'd say, what board? Well, we got a board and they say y'all didn't pass. And we go back again. A lawyer from the Justice Department came here and investigated. When we went back to register, the registrar gave me this thing to fill out again. And instead of filling it out, I wrote down there, it said what it meant and it meant what it said. He said, well, you passed. We really taught them some lessons. That's the reason we're so educated because we taught them. I've never walked down the hall with a cap and gown on, but I walked down the hall in Washington and I lobbied for student loans and I lobbied for social security and I lobbied for teacher pay raises. And I've helped you get equal pay right here in this county. So I'm an educator. And that is the end uh, with Winston and Debbie Hudson. Thank you for that. I'm so sorry. Like I, I was like, those moments, I read it. I was so taken aback by it. Uh, Vern, I am thankful and appreciative of you even sending that, because I don't have that book. I didn't have that book. I should have um, been able to have access to that that the, that story and many more. Um, and I just, I just, for those that don't know how hard <laughs> I work and, and the spaces that I come from as someone, as a product of Northern Migration, about what it means to garner your right to vote and what that means uh forward and all the spaces in between. This is just one of many, many stories. I have my own, but I was just thankful to like read about these sisters. Thank well, you. and here's what I feel. There's, I feel like there's nothing more, nothing better that we can do for all of ourselves, black and white, than get involved in the voting rights issues. We have to preserve our voting rights. That that woman spent two years trying to register. That her sister spent a year and a half trying to register. And you can see that they're trying to do the same thing again, you know, so that fewer people will register. And we just in my mind, we can't let them do it. So that's that I think is the best thing we can offer is for the white citizens of America, you know, to press for voting rights, not because we necessarily feel our own are in jeopardy, although I feel mine are because, uh, you know, if you can't vote by by mail, uh, older people are always in danger of being disenfranchised. But I feel like we need to get on this voting rights thing big time. And I, I wanted Andrea to come in and talk about after we vote and what it was doing about voting rights. But I have a feeling she left to listen to Biden's speech and open a room on after we vote because that's Andrea's whole life. 
And we're going to have more discussions about voting rights in Karma Club also. But Shireen, the story that you told in your room was about the woman who's, who hid in the Schomburg collection and later ended up running it. Do you remember Jean, uh, Bla- Jean Blackwell? Yes. That's also in the same book that Vern has. Oh, okay. I, I, the only reason why I'm pausing is that um, I'm doing my best, so you know I have to run soon. And um, and and if you want that story told, uh, Vern, did you hear the name? That's the other person. It's Jean Blackwell. Jean Blackwell Hudson, but this is H U T S O N. Is that in your book, Vern? It is. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I found it, and then I, I would say one thing: like, one, uh, like this book, it's been out of print, and you know, it's astonishing to me that this book is out of print because one, like, this is, uh, like, Oprah Winfrey was featured; she's profiled in the book, and this was before she became a billionaire, and it just has it has such compelling portraits. It has women who were senators and in the uh, House of Representatives, but then it also has just women down south who were like local organizers with the NAACP and like this is a book that really shouldn't be out of print and you know I give it away as a gift and the way I get it I I usually it's it's you can usually find copies on Amazon that aren't too expensive and uh, you know like I I purchase them and a lot of times it's like library copies that are out of circulation and you know I circulate it to like nephews and nieces and you know, like Shireen, you know, like she's, she's, she's out there in the world, but it just has these, you know, really compelling, fascinating stories. And it's all and only like black women, you know, who, who, who have to do. And, and I think, you know, it's like, there are these stories that, you know, people take voting for granted. And in these stories, you know, like you can actually feel how we're backsliding and how much, how much of people's lives, you know, like, like the, the courage and the fortitude it took for these women to stand up in like the Jim Crow South, you know, to, for that right to vote. And like, you know, it, it puts it in very stark terms, you know, like, like what it's all about. And I think a lot of, you know, like with my daughters who are teenagers now, you know, they, they won't be eligible to vote for years, but I really want them to understand you know, like what's what's at stake and and what it took for us as a nation to get to a point where they could take their voting for granted and for them never never to do that. But uh, I can read uh, Jean Blackwell Hudson's. Uh, yeah, I, I would really you know what I was going to say, I would really like that. But I then I realize I have four or five people up on stage and 15 minutes left. So. Hang on for a minute, Vern. Let's see who else would like to talk. Uh, Tony? I'd like to. Oh, wait. Go ahead. Barbara? I'd love to share some personal experiences that are very current because I think, I mean, the honoring the history of the past is just so, so important because we can have the best of intentions. But if we have blind spots, like Francine, you shared your own personal blind spot, we don't have congruence, congruence between our intention and our behavior, right, or what we say. 
Right. There are two experiences that friend, black Supreme Court or Superior Court judge, Michael Tollock, who married us, and, and um, he shared a story. We were just sitting around the, the uh, pool and having a barbecue, and we were talking about going to the cottage. And he said, and you know, one, one of our friends said, yeah, I can't wait to put some, you know, grungy T-shirt, cottage T-shirt, and get to the cottage. And Michael said, I can't do that. I have to watch everything that I do, what clothes I wear, what car I buy, the kind of language I use. And here he is, a super accomplished, beautiful human being, Superior Court judge, right, in Canada. And he shared that experience, right? Uh, in, incredible, right? Another one is Ken Cheneau, who who is retired, but he was the first black CEO at American Express or first black CEO to Fortune 500 companies. Uh, and uh, I was uh, coaching him on, advising him on women and advancing women and diversity inside American Express. And he asked me the question. He was having the first women's conference at American Express ever. And he asked me, what, do you, what would you recommend I say uh, speaking to, you know, 500 women at American Express that are coming into New York from all over the world? And I said, the m- number one thing, number one gift you can give is to be authentic. Anyway, he went on stage and he shared something that he had never shared before. And it was this. He said, when I was hired at American Express, I was hired as being uh, out of Harvard Law School, right? I was going to be part of the strategic planning group in 1981. And he said, I went into the building and I went into the elevator and uh, 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 one of the security officers told me that I could not use that elevator. I had to go and use the service elevator, right? And then he went up to the floor where he was hired and the security there said he couldn't be on that floor, right? And that was in 1981. And he had never shared that before because he was always super professional, you know, took the high road, all of that. But it was just a pin drop. So here we are, you know, in more current times when we see even very accomplished you know, these two black men accomplished, right? I don't even want to go to the, you know, black women, uh, their experiences, that these water torture experiences they have. So I just wanted to share that um, as a point of learning as well. Thanks, Francine. I'm done for now. Robin, do you have something you'd like to share or contribute or comment? Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so some of my work on, um, it intersects with uh, politics and social justice. Um, but I want to encourage people to look into uh, some of uh, Resma Menikem's work. Uh, he's based in Minneapolis. Uh, he wrote the book, My Grandmother's Hands, um, because it really goes into, uh, I think Dr. Francine touched a little bit about how uh, trauma and racial trauma is uh passed through uh, the body, through DNA. Uh, there's research about, you know, trauma being passed, passed through blood, semen, et cetera. Um, and, you know, a lot of this work around race and racism, it really starts with understanding where racism came from in terms of not seeing Black people as humans, um, seeing Black people as subhuman. And this was able, this idea is, is, was able to justify slavery and all kind of other 
brutal acts and things of that nature. Um, that's why you can go, you know, and it's not, you know, limited to the United States. Um, you can go anywhere in the world. And that's why you see, you know, anti-blackness or when, when people who are darker skin are referred to as monkeys and apes and things of that nature. And you see that, you know, trope and those, um, you know, ideas are still present today. Um, so I just want to offer to some of the non-Black people or non-Brown people, you know, when white people are perpetuating this idea of racism or white superiority, you know, they're all, white people are also dehumanizing themselves. Because when you're looking at another human and, and you're interacting from those um, those ideas, that is dehumanizing your soul, you know, and who you are as a person as well. And that's why it's so important that everybody does their own personal work in understanding racial trauma, because everybody is being impacted by this. Um, also, uh, I just wanted to share too, um, in the book, My Grandma's, Grandmother's Hands, it just talks about how your nervous system reacts when you are in a space, you know, to talk about race, because you're you know, you're not just talking about it for yourself and your terms. There's hundreds of years of history, you know, that you're bringing into the space when you are talking about um, race and racism. And it's just too much of a charge for one person, one body, your nervous system to be able to um, handle that. And so a lot of his work um, talks about you know, ways through breathing and through visualization and through um, various uh, healing arts practices that you can start to do your own work on yourself, you know, in and around race. Because, you know, it's not about, uh, you know, the racial slurs or anything like that. I mean, this is in, you know, these ideas of white supremacy and white nationalism, everything, it's, it's ingrained. <laughs> so it's definitely in American culture, in U.S. culture. Um, but it's, it's so ingrained that you don't even realize, you know, what you're doing or how, how you're thinking about it. So that's why, again, it's just important to really, um, do your own work, um, on yourself and start, you know, thinking back, you know, uh, when I do this work with people, you know, we'll go through a practice and just thinking about, you know, the first time that you ever knew you were black or knew you, knew you weren't black or that you knew you were, you know, quote unquote white, or when you first noticed these cons these social constructs. Um, you know, it doesn't have to literally be the first time, but, you know, just where is that in your awareness and where did that come from? And just looking in, you know, when we look at this, it always goes back to our family, you know, patterns and what we heard in our family or in our communities. So, um, so any, anyway, I just wanted to highlight that. So again, you know, my grandmother's hands, Resma Medicam, he's doing, um, incredible work. He wrote this book, um, about maybe six months or so before, George Floyd was murdered. Um, he's a black man located in um, Minneapolis. He's a therapist. His brother is uh, a police officer and he's done so much work with um, police and, and black and brown people. And he's just doing really incredible groundbreaking work around this. So thank you for having me. And this is Robin. I'm finished speaking. Uh, yeah, this is Tony. Um, I, I guess I would add to the, the story as you look at grandmother's hands and when we came to the point of knowing that there was part of the story missing. And for me, it's when my mom would explain to me this immediate exodus they had from, from Arkansas and they would cover the story with, you know, going up North and, and they're going to, they're going to have a new start. But when I had a chance as a young man 
to travel back to that small little town in Arkansas and you see the, the land that they left, some of the homes are still in place, it didn't add up. What I was able to find from my mom in her, in her final days here on this planet is that there was an event. There was a, there was a lynching. And that's what really was the, the you know, the, the really the, the fire starter for this exodus. She had held that away from me for so long. But after I traveled and saw that small town still intact, you know, some 1,600 acres of land still owned by the family, I said, why did you leave all this? And that's when she broke down and told me. So again, for us, it's an unraveling and almost the electric point that goes down the body. There's, there's so much trauma that they won't tell. They won't tell us those stories to preserve us, to keep us going. But again, we've got to unravel all of it. And then from there, share the truth. So thank you for this room. It, it's hard to listen to the stories in some cases because we all have a story that, that, that hurts. And again, so many stories have never been told. Thank you, Tony Landit. Nice to meet you, Tony. Are you the one who's doing the NFT that Rebecca for the Blacks was telling me about? Uh, yes, it's in the PTR. That little girl's me. Hi, Tony. Um, nice to meet you on here, finally. Hey, hey, hey. How you doing? Tony How you will doing? be sponsoring a few upcoming organic soul rooms as well and in and, and preparation for this launch on March 1st. Yep, that's that's me. I, I, I love to be in the stage often listening, uh, but I follow everyone. I, I, I love that the, the rooms are always thoughtful, perfect curation, and then have moments for a spontaneity. And when heavy stuff hits, we let it we let it rest a little bit. We, we play with it. We don't we don't push off too fast. And I, again, want to celebrate you for the start of the room talking about what are our blind spots, how often we may be still living with the vocabulary that our parents gave us, but it can still be hurtful. So again, that, that took great courage and transparency. But again, that's what that growth feels like. It stretches us, makes us better. But I'll talk about the NFT a little bit later. But thank you for the opportunity to be on stage. Tony okay. Landon. Okay. Uh, oops. Um, so Tony, did you want to finish explaining the NFT or do you want me to do it? Okay, I'll take I'll take 30 seconds. Thank you for Black and for the Blacks. Um, that little girl's me NFT is going to drop on OpenSea March 1st, beginning of, of Women's uh, History Month. I think it's an appropriate time. But this is a, a story for depending on what age you are and how much history you have, everyone has a different moment in which they can understand this uh, NFT. It started in October 2020 in a uh, with my brother uh, being inspired by the word said by Kamala Harris, that little girl's me. To talking about busing in, in South Berkeley. And oftentimes we don't think about busing in California in some of our Western states. Um, but it, it was a fact that segregation was very much a part of every school district and how it changed us. And the fact that she was uh, connected to um, Ruby Bridges, um, we, we put the two together because let us know that this path that we've, we've made, we are all on heads and shoulders of those who passed before us. So there's a discord and there are links and I would love to continue this this conversation. But thank you for this. Um, March 1st, Open Sea. But we want to share this message with everyone else because we think NFTs and capturing history, capturing moments is a, 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 a perfect tool for NFT. And we will want to share our team and what we've done with other people who might embark on the same on the same journey. Thank you so much, everyone. Well, Tony, I always mint NFTs that help women's projects. And so I will probably find my way 
to your Discord. <laughs> but I hate Discord so much. It's just, it is so noisy. Vern, would you like to take us out by reading the story that Shireen read in her room the other day? Oh, if I can, um, Francine, before Vern does, I'll be super fast. I just want to like, because I know we talked about all of this and then I haven't said much um, for this room. So, um, uh, to, and I, I was going to. But your that. presence has been here, girlfriend. Oh, I, my presence has been here for over 400 years. I was in the embryo of my, my mother's room already, uh, kicking, get up, stand up, stand up for your rights before, um, she birthed me into this planet. So yes. Um, well, uh, <laughs> you know, issues and solutions. Uh, so regarding your vulnerability and transparency and leaning into, the pain points, right? On the other side of that is grace, is love, right? And is understanding that we're a part of a human family. I think the reason why too often, um, specifically whites, right, don't embrace, you know, this level of, wow, okay, let me pivot, let me learn more, let me fail, right? Is is because we live in a meritocracy. We live in, in this constant perpetual state of perfectionism, right? And if something seems like it, it's too difficult, well, why risk, right? It becomes risk, we, we become very risk averse, right? So, so dealing with racism is counterintuitive to the way that our society is built. And then the power structure also makes it so that there's an incentive to shut the fuck up, right? Like, <laughs> And I say that clinically as a diversity trainer. Um, so, yeah, you know. but if also, Black and for the Blacks, if you're me and you fought this battle once and you thought you did it, it's really somewhat of a stunner out of left field to, to realize that the Voting Rights Act and all these things that you took for granted from 1965 on because you marched for them when you were a kid, you know, and when you're a college student and when you were a young woman, you know, you and marched and was an activist and thought, okay, we did that. We're moving forward. And all of a sudden, I forget who said, I think it might have been Vern, we're sliding backward. We really are. And and the fact that we have to fight over again, you know, n- never ceases to amaze me and make me sad. Yes. So if I, if I, yes. So my point is that whiteness over indexes. It over indexes how much progress it, they, they, writ large, right? Not any individual have made, right? Uh, they over index. Um, how well they're doing things in terms of ending racism. And they also over-index about, you know, freedom, justice, and equality, truth and justice for all, all the, all the platitudes that make America the exceptional racist bastion of racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia that, transphobia that it is, right? So I always say occupy the converse, occupy the opposite. Lean into what if the other, what if there's another path? What if the opposite were true? That even though I think I'm doing enough, there's more that I can do. Not in a um, punishing, beat yourself up, you know, traumatic way. I'm not advocating for that at all. But I've, I've been doing, I've been doing diversity training before it was hot. Right. I'm talking like almost 10 years. I've been working with institutions, working with individuals, also teaching it in my classroom. Right. 
And I, I have anecdotal and I have quantitative data of over-indexing where white people think, oh, we did that. Oh, we're great. And then, and then we're great. We did that. The urge is to do that so we can move on and do other things because it's too ugly to really face it and to know how bad it actually is. So, so, so the new way of viewing allyship is, um, you know, it's a work in progress. I'm an ally in training, right? Like, um, because for me, like I'm a diversity, you know, diversity, I study, whatever, who cares, right? I'm constantly learning. I'm a lifelong learner, right? Like you all don't know, I have two over four foot tall hibiscus growing indoors in my apartment in New York City with heat and everything else growing, blooming, right? So I'm a lifelong learner, period. Gardening, (laughs) cooking, racism, transphobia, like all of it, right? So, and I think that there's, you know, when you look at social media, and I'll be done, when you look at social media, you will see white people doing everything, right? They're making sourdough bread because of COVID, the quarantine, right? They're doing everything but really putting themselves through an entire lifelong commitment to ending racism. It's conditional and it usually defaults to, oh, I did it. And then move on to the, you know, your abs need to be done. You know, what new siding to put on your house. That's why I started my diversity company, Anti-Racist Personal Trainer. We cannot view race ending racism like going to the gym one day and expecting a six pack. You would never do that for a six pack. You would go, right? You would go every day. You would you would get a personal trainer. You would you would you would look at videos. You would you would do the work. You would sweat, right? But for some reason, when it comes to racism, it's like oh click click I did it, and we move on, right? Like if that was the case, we we'd have flabby apps. So so I always say stop the over indexing, <laughs> and and equate ending racism like you would anything else in your in, in our society that you would want to change. Because everything else that we want to change would require some level of work, some level of research, right? So I would just say that. And um, and great that you're vulnerable um, to share, you know, uh, ways in which uh, we all can pivot, right? Because we can lead by example. Uh, lastly, in terms of that girl was me, it's a, it's a exciting NFT drop on March 1st, that is going to benefit over, how many, how many um, creators are you trying to um, impact, Tony? Um, we are going to have 10% of the profits for, to nonprofits. We've only named three so far, um, but the real goal is to, you know, even expand the, uh, the number of, of potential nonprofits. So if there are other names of nonprofits you can provide, we want to, uh, you know, share the share the funds. Mm-hmm. So 0.5% of proceeds will be donated to various nonprofits that focus on the empowerment of young women and, and girls and or our female uh, identifying entrepreneurs. Um, and also it's 4,444 4, um, NFTs that will be dropped and, and minted for people to purchase. Uh, it's an auction. It's international. It's global. Um, so there's a contingent of Indian uh, women and girls that are also excited about this NFT drop. So this is an exciting um, 
uh, opportunity to really amplify right at the beginning of Women's History Month and at the end of Black History Month to center, uh, regardless of how you feel about Kamala Harris, just the fact that she is literally the vice president and what that means in terms of being in the executive mansion, which is what the actual White House is called, which is a whole other story about racism, why it's even called the White House. But anywho, the executive mansion, right? So that a woman of her heritage, of her caliber is able to do that. That little girl was me. There's so many children, so many young girls all around the world that now can see themselves in the mirror and say, okay, this is my North Star. This is my goal. And I now know that I'm not a dreamer, but this can actually happen. And I can assemble the the, the mentors, the resources, and everything that I need in order to attain that goal just like Kamala Harris did. She went to Howard University, so did I, right? That, that, that you, can, you can go to college, you can network, you can run for office, you can do these things to get to your goal. That is the power of the uh, That Little Girl Was Me NFT drop that is happening on March 1st. I'm, on March 1st. So really, really excited um, to make that announcement. Um, I'm going to be one of the uh, recipients of a micro grant based on the fundraising around this opportunity. I'm also helping to guide the uh, communication strategy for it. So yeah, if you know of, of anyone that's excited about um, impacting and inspiring young women and girls, please let them know about this link. Please let them know about March 1st. Um, let's make this as big as possible. Love you all black. But love you. I'm going to let burn. I'm going to tell the audience that replays are on because I think people might want to download this and share it and replay it. And Vern, would you take us out with that story? Okay. All right. So uh, this is uh, this, uh, Jean Blackwell Hudson. She was born September 7th, 1914 in Somerville, Florida, Summerfield, Florida, and died February 4th, 1998, in New York City. For 32 years, she guided the development of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, the world's most comprehensive collection of materials documenting the history and culture of peoples of African descent. From curator in 1948 to chief until 1980, she worked to acquire, catalog, exhibit materials under the auspices of the New York Public Library. She lectured on history at the City College of New York, my alma mater, for over a decade and retired in 1984. Uh, So this is her own words. I was born three months premature. My father was about to knock up this little wooden box to bury me in, so he told me. He could hardly hit the nails. He was crying so hard. And I started yelling, and I've been talking ever since. In 1936, I received a telegram to come here to work at the old 135th Street Branch Library. I was substituting for the librarian of the Schomburg Collection, which was on the top floor while she was out on maternity leave. In my freshness, I got into trouble with Mr. Schomburg. His books had been cataloged by the Dewey Decimal System, but he had he had ignored that and kept the books in this rarest collection arranged by height of the spine and their hue. So one night I stayed and arranged these books by the decimal system so that everybody could 
locate them from the card catalog. When he came in the next day, he couldn't find anything. He forbade me to come back in the place. We had had an amicable, amiable relationship until then. He was very cordial, locutious, arty person to know. He often said that he was inspired by bad teaching. He had some other dark skin. He and some other dark skinned boys in his native Puerto Rico had asked why they didn't study Negro history, and they were told that Negroes had no history. I think that's when he started collecting every evidence he could find on Negroes. Schomburg had a different concept of our history. His collection included non-book materials because he found many African art objects more revealing of African history than books. Schomburg's library was one that incorporated the idea of Negroes in other parts of the world, as well as the United States, whereas other collections all started with slavery, as if it was the very beginning. This collection was purchased by the New York Public Library in 1926, and it became the center of all sorts of meetings. During the Harlem Renaissance, people came from the Caribbean as well as from the South and brought together this inspiration in protest. Leopold Sadar Senghor, the African scholar and longtime president of Senegal, feels that art and literature are the precursors of political activity. He said the Harlem Renaissance inspired the political independence movements of Africa. Every last one of them first had the writing and the musical expression before the political explosion. After I left the Schomburg collection, I became the guinea pig to go and work in other branch libraries where supposedly no Negroes could work. I learned that customers really didn't care what our color what color handed them the books unless you didn't find what they wanted. Then they might look at you and call you a nigger, but they didn't care that much. I was at the Harlem Library, and that was when Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison and the boys used to come and sit in the library and talk. That's where I first knew John Henry Clark and met Richard Wright that way. It took me 10 years to return as curator of the Schomburg. When the Schomburg collection was transferred from the branch libraries to the research libraries in 1972 and renamed the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, I remember one man said that the branch libraries love people and the research libraries love books. I cleaned out of where a storehouse of uncatalogued materials, four closets of stuff. We got all that material catalog. Some of it was fabulous. It was the WPA, Works Progress Administration Art Project on Negroes in the history of New York. Kwame Kamura, then the president of Ghana, sent a very eloquent letter for W.E.B. Du Bois' 90th birthday in which he paid tribute to what the Schomburg had meant to him. That was where he got a chance to read his own history. He wanted this kind of library for his young people. That was how I went to work at the Africana Collection at the University of Ghana in 1964-65 semester. It was really a very liberating experience for me. I remember feeling ashamed of being 50 years old, an old lady, but being in Africa meant that I was respected and sought after. I really was surprised how at home I felt and liberated. And then I realized that it was my first experience being accepted as a person without regard to race. 
One of the most rewarding experiences I had was opening up the Africana collection. It was very good, but it was limited to people who lived and stayed on the African continent. One day, I just couldn't stand it. I went in and had a three-hour session with the head librarian, an Englishman who had worked all his life on the African continent. He finally conceded that those who, those of us who had lived abroad were still Africans, that we were still making our contribution to the continent and still had a place in the African collection. I was proud that I left the collection with historical and geographical boundaries greatly extended. One of the main things that Schomburg does is supply the ammunition for change. It is a part of the public library, open to everybody, everywhere. You don't have to be registered at the university to have access to the materials. You don't have to pay an admission fee to come in, and the catalog is available all around the world. That has been and continues to be the opportunity that the Schomburg offers. And that is Miss Jean Blackwell Hudson. I thought that was the most incredible story. And I had no idea there even was, I mean, I grew up in, in, in New York. I didn't even know there was a Schomburg collection. And I looked it up on Wikipedia. I mean, you, you guys, white people, go do the work. This is fascinating if you actually do it. Anyway, I love you all. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I, I would just say, I would just say that um, the Schomburg. I I actually worked at the Schomburg for three years. Um, the Schomburg is literally ten. I blocks love away. the Schomburg. Yeah, the Schomburg is literally ten blocks away from where I live right now. Um, so the Schomburg is the only uh, black focused library within the New York Public Library system. So. It's billions of dollars that that are donated and 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 used up um, in New York City budget for New York Public Library, but the Schomburg <laughs> is perpetually say it blunder funded. Blunder funded. Blunder funded. Um, so you all can go to the Schomburg physically. You all can also go to the Schomburg online. You can also donate. Um, the Schomburg has the largest repository, like over, I, I don't even remember the number, but like, over, it literally is over a million items from, from art, from the archives of, of black history globally and, um, also domestically. So it, it is a treasure trove and there, there are also exhibits that rotate throughout the year that you can see physically and then also online. So there's an archive and there's also current exhibitions that you can see um it oh great the website is right there yes so you all can visit that yes oh, okay for the blacks for the blacks for black thank you so much for all your help thank all of you who showed up i am blessed to have so many friends who show up and help contribute to my life and help me keep learning and i will be ending the room so go back to the worst news. <laughs> this has actually been uplifting. <laughs>